0: Welcome to Episode 7 of the Anglo-Boer War Podcast. I'm your host, Des Latham. General Redverse Buller, the commander of British forces in South Africa, is in Cape Town, having arrived in late October 1899 and walked off the ship and into a firestorm. His orders to General White in Natal had been ignored. White had allowed Colonel Penn Simons to move north of the Tugela River to Dundee, where he'd been killed in action. Now General White himself was holed up in Ladysmith, surrounded by two large Boer commandos, the Free Staters under General Steyn and the Transvaalers under General Joubert. Worse, White had further ignored the basic rules of a field force, and instead of fighting his way back to Durban or Pietermaritzburg, he decided to try one last push north towards the Boers. He paid for this folly with a heavy defeat at Nicholson's neck on the morning of November 1st where over 1,000 British were taken prisoner, more than 300 killed and hundreds more wounded. Equally, the Boers had now decided to lay siege to Ladysmith instead of a further attack immediately on Ladysmith itself, which would have suited their ethos of fast-moving attacks. But the Boers hesitated, fearful of the 1,200-odd British troops now surrounded in Ladysmith. You can imagine Redverse Buller in Cape Town gnashing his teeth over the whole scenario. He'd warned repeatedly over the past few months before the war began for the British to remain south of the Tigela River and concentrate its small force there as he put his larger Army Corps reinforcements together. Instead, Colonel Simons had chosen to ignore his warnings and Lieutenant General White failed to make him reverse his moves. The reason why this is such a major issue is that Buller, unlike White and Simons, had a great deal of experience fighting in South Africa against the Zulu in 1879, and again against the Boers in the First Boer War in 1880 and 81. He knew how fast the Boers could move, and how their mobility could be catastrophic for a plodding army. White was 64 years old at this time, and had already told his wife back in Britain, after the shock of Nicholson's neck, that he would give up soldiering. However, the British first had to save him before they could fire him. He and Simons, who was now dead, having been mortally wounded at the Battle of Dundee, had both thought of the Boers as a rabble and discounted Boer victories against black Africans because they were steeped in their superiority complex they had as members of the British Empire with its implied racism and arrogance. Furthermore, during the three early engagements with the Boers in Natal in October, where the mobile Burgers had employed a clever guerrilla war tactic known as strategic offensive, tactical defensive, showed how this guerrilla army was immune to the British style of artillery barrage, infantry assault, cavalry cutting off retreat, the Aldershot method. White hadn't fully comprehended the Boers' method, even though he had seen it employed before his very eyes for almost a month. Buller would not be that stupid. But he would also be racked by indecision and, at times, panic attacks that left him unable to decide on a course of action. This led to mournful Monday. We've heard about that in the last podcast, where Nicholson's neck north of Ladysmith and Natal had put paid to the arrogance. A thousand British prisoners heading off to Pretoria. There was now panic in Ladysmith. Citizens left the town in droves before the Boers closed down their routes of escape. It was a classic scene of frenzy and fear. Half the houses were left empty, shops and banks closed. Bankers handed over their cash to the military authorities. The officers sent their wives to Penamaritzburg. Hundreds of English farmers who'd trekked into Ladysmith seeking protection from the Boers lined the streets in their wagons. White then made another decision which doomed his cavalry. Instead of sending the entire unit along with Colonel French, who left by train, he split the horses, leaving around half in Ladysmith. This meant the well-trained horses would eventually end up on tables as horse steak and later horse stew as the siege went on. We must understand that the Battle of Nicholson's Neck and Ladysmith was really out of proportion to its significance for both sides. To the Boers it was a tonic convincing many of the doubters amongst the force of 34,000 in Natal and also waiting to attack the Cape that it was feasible to beat the world's superpower. On the British side, it destroyed Lieutenant General White's fragile confidence. He wrote to his wife, I think after this venture, the men will lose confidence in me and that I ought to be superseded. White had been a pillar of strength of the Indian army, but Africa destroyed him. It was a time of bad news for the British. The railway bridges over the Orange River had not been blown up because the governor of the Cape, Lord Milner, wanted it this way. Fearing the Cape Afrikaners would then rise up and fight alongside their Free State and Transvaal brothers if their bridges were blown up. All that this meant is that the Boers seized the bridges at Nouvelle's Point, which would see more action later, and Batuli, where they crossed in large numbers. Meanwhile, Buller fretted in Cape Town. Cecil John Rhodes was howling and whining in Kimberley, demanding rescue as the Boers had surrounded the Diamond Town in October. Initially, Buller wanted to continue with the master plan of marching his 47,000 troops straight up the middle of South Africa, retaking the bridges over the Orange, then to Bloemfontein and finally Pretoria, ignoring the besieged towns on the way. However, the march to Pretoria would take months and was at least 1,400 kilometers of hard slog and must have seemed like a distant dream to Buller as he panicked and vacillated in Cape Town. After many days of indecision, Buller split his force. As we saw in the Second World War when Hitler broke his army into three, or the First World War when the Russians split their massive army, all that happens is the brigades are weakened and compete with each other for supplies, reinforcements and material. The situation in Natal was critical. White only had provisions for 60 days. Furthermore, there were only two other battalions based south of Ladysmith. So if the Boer commander, Hubert, decided to bypass the town, he could have headed straight to the strategically vital port of Durban. Reluctantly then, Buller broke up his army corps. Lieutenant General Sir Francis Cleary's 2nd Division would be sent on to Durban by sea, then to relieve Ladysmith. Lieutenant-General Methuen's 1st Division, Lieutenant-General William Gattaca's 3rd and French's Cavalry Division, would disembark in Cape Town, then attack Da'ar on the crucial rail link and begrudgingly answer Rhodes' squealing by heading to relieve Kimberley. Gataker would then march east of Methuen to Nauport and secure the two railway lines to the harbour towns of Port Elizabeth and East London, and French's Cavalry would remain in the Cape in reserve just in case things went wrong. Buller himself would be heading to Natal, his old stomping ground, and take direct command of the relief of Ladysmith. Across the country, outside Ladysmith on the 9th of November, Boer Commander General Joubert held a council of war and asked his men for a decision on one of his three main tactical changes. First, should they continue laying siege to Ladysmith? Second, to divide his forces between laying siege to Ladysmith and sending the other half to the Tugela Valley, where they'd wait for the British. Or third, to pack everyone up and head straight to the port uh, town south of Ladysmith, targeting Durban and hoping to beat the British reinforcements to that port. The Boer leaders from the Free State and Transvaal Commanders voted for the first option, to continue surrounding Ladysmith. Denise Reitz, part of the Jubei army, wasn't so sure, and wrote later, We rested on our laurels for a few days each kimono camping immediately behind the position it had held during the battle. On every hill and Kopi lay a force of riflemen, and there must have been nearly 10,000 thus tied down who could have been put to far better use. Here a curious note. One of Reitz's black workers on his farm then arrived, having walked all the way from the Transvaal border, and was welcomed as a long-lost friend, at least according to Reitz. What had made a black South African walk into the middle of a war when he could have stayed back at home. It's hard to explain these anomalies. It's part of the tapestry that's southern Africa. Rates says prickly, there were no military duties. Charlie, as he's known, we're not told about Charlie's surname, helped with day-to-day chores around the Boer camp. He was not alone. There were thousands of black workers on the Boer side, helping build walls, digging trenches and even working as spies, for which some would be shot. The reason Reitz appointedly says there were no military duties in both British and Boer because they had agreed that they would not arm black South Africans, but both sides, as we see, lied. Black South Africans fought for Boer and British across the entire territory and throughout the war. Charlie was also expert at what Reitz calls freebooting, in other words, stealing domestic animals from farmers and local blacks often bringing back chickens and meat, upon which the three, Reitz, his brother, and Charlie would dine. Black South Africans were to be brutally treated by both sides in this war, starved in Mafeking, forced out of Johannesburg, used as civilian shields by the British, women raped and murdered in besieged towns, children used as spies, and also shot. Another aside which needs further discussion is Reitz's openly ambivalent feelings about his own commanding officer, who he called general marula after the potent drink from the fruit of the marula tree that was obviously general yobe his leader and the other was swat lavai which roughly translated means black noise he says both marula and swat lavai were incompetent leaders but they were true men nevertheless they sacrificed all they possessed and later in the war they were deserted by their men but they remained in the field as private soldiers until the end. In Cape Town, Buller ordered the raising of several groups of colonial troops, which his superiors had tried to stop, but the lack of local knowledge was a real failing, and they needed men who knew the land. One of the first problems in doing this was the pay. Ironically, the colonials earned five times more what the British soldier earned, five shillings a day. The British trooper, one shilling. The war office was also fearful that the colonial troops would be easily defeated, thus gifting the Boers a large number of weapons and provisions. What became known as the imperial troops performed better than expected, particularly later, as we'll see. Furthermore, Buller and Milner, the governor, did not get on well. The former was a soldier through and through, the latter a politician. Milner thought of Buller as big, bold, brash, rude in his paramilitary ways. Buller thought Milner effeminate, timid, soft, unreposing, a pen-pusher. Buller wanted martial law declared and Boer spies arrested in the Cape and shipped to Lorenzo Marx, or present-day Maputo, the capital of Mozambique. Milner was afraid of the Shriner government, which had warned that such a move would destabilize the region and cause the Cape Afrikaners to rise up. Milner was correct in his strategic assessment, effeminate or not. The possible invasion of the Cape worried him more than the Boer invasion of Natal for a simple reason. The vast majority of whites in Natal supported the British. In the Cape, it was an entirely different matter. A successful invasion of the Cape would have been a political disaster that could have been irreversible. Nine-tenths of Natal were British, and they couldn't be conquered even if the Boers occupied the territory. That's the whites, that is. In the Cape, however, loyalties were far more complicated. Two-thirds of the white population were Afrikaners who Milner thought, and he was probably correct, would side with the Boers should they invade. As the plans progressed, in Pretoria, we have heard throughout this series from a young schoolgirl called Frida Schlossberg. One of the things that began to change in her life and her development was, within a few months, she went from a happy 13-year-old schoolgirl to a cautious adult threatened with rape and murder. Schools had shut down and she was forced back to her father's farm east of Pretoria near modern-day Cullendon. On November 23rd, she notes, The day before yesterday, the number of tents increased. Members of the eightlander corps had been arriving all day carrying bundles of luggage, rifles, ammunition. The detachment consists of two or three hundred mercenaries, Hollanders, Germans, Frenchmen, Americans, Italians, Hungarians, Portuguese, all rough-looking common men evidently from the lowest classes. Some of these had come from Johannesburg, others from across the sea in a train ride from Lorenzo Marx. These mercenaries then began systematically plundering civilians, stealing all domestic animals and threatening the populace, even though they were apparently on the same side. The mercenaries fought, drank and created havoc. Frieda continues darkly. A Hollander who came from Pretoria boasted of having outspanned horses from cabs the previous day in the streets of Pretoria. One cab driver who refused to give up his horses soon changed his mind when he said he'd put his revolver against the man's head. Then turning to us, he says, if anyone here refuses anything, we'll do the same to him or her. He was looking at me. I wondered what I was supposed to give him. That was a chilling comment at a time of violence. Needless to say, Frieda's father decided that night that the family should leave the farm, which was clearly a wise decision considering the mood of the mercenaries. They were supposed to protect the civilians, but had turned into predators. Stories like this began filtering back to the Boer soldiers on the front, which had a major impact on morale, as we'll see. As this phase of the Anglo-Boer War moves towards its next climax, a few words about other important members of the caste. Colonel Alexander Haig, for example, had fled Ladysmith with General French, the philandering cavalry officer. Haig would be more famous during the First World War for leading the Allies into terrible, scarring battles like the Somme, which killed and wounded hundreds of thousands. Right now, though, Haig was on a train, fleeing Ladysmith, north of Pinamaritzburg and Natal, one of the last trains also, by all accounts. The Boers just missed shooting his train to bits as they fled south. Morale amongst the British troops in Ladysmith was low. In London, authorities had realised now how poorly Lieutenant General White had led his men, and it was agreed in the War Office that he should be sacked. Back in London, another scandal had developed, but at the time, no one was aware. There was a delay in supplying the forces in South Africa. The Army Corps may be delayed up to six weeks kicking its heels, as basic logistics was lacking. In modern terms, it's a bit like sending 47,000 troops to another country, then realizing that they don't have aircraft or vehicles for transport. In this case, it was horses. The British needed half a million pounds worth of mules, horses and oxen, and had put out the word around the world. Argentina, the United States of America, Australia, New Zealand, all were approached to supply these animals, but it would take weeks to purchase them and then transport to Africa. Remember the disaster of the U.S. forces in Iraq when they arrived and found there were not enough armored vehicles? Well, it's pretty similar at this point in the Anglo-World War. The railway lines would be used as the main transport centers. From there, the troops would be entrained and marched to Boer forces nearby. That was the theory. Well, we'll see how the theory was put into practice in the next few podcasts. Please remember to leave a rating on iTunes and follow the Anglo-Burgu conversation on Twitter at Des Latham. Goodbye.